What if we got it wrong? What if these mental illnesses, such as depression and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and others, what if it was a mitochondrial issue, a metabolic issue? Well, on today's episode, we bring on Dr. Chris Palmer to discuss his latest book, Brain Energy. Here's a huge caveat that I really need to say loud and clear. If you're taking those medications, you must work with your healthcare professional to try to change them or get off them or adjust them. Please, please, please do not try to do that on your own. If you do, I can almost guarantee you it's gonna be a disaster. When people try to come off psychiatric medications too fast or when they try to do it on their own, more often than not, it does not work out well. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper. Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. I'm very excited for today's episode with Dr. Chris Palmer. His latest book, Brain Energy, is making the rounds and changing lives because his book and his research is connecting the dots between mental health and metabolic health, especially as it relates to the mitochondria. And believe me, we're going to take a deep dive into the mitochondria. And at the end of this episode, you're going to understand how the mitochondria function how incredible the innate intelligence is within your body, how to upgrade the mitochondria, and how a ketogenic approach, low-carb, high-fat, can be transformational for these mental illnesses. When Dr. Chris Palmer shares the story about a patient he had who utilized keto to overcome some serious mental illnesses, it's going to give you goosebumps. And that's not just the only patient. Ever since that story, ever since that happened, he's going to share the story how he took a deep dive into the research and started to connect the dots between mental health and the food you eat. That's right. The food determines your mood. So we'll hear his backstory. We'll take a deep dive into the mitochondria. We'll talk about some of the research as it shows the ketogenic diet and what it does for mental health. We'll talk about the mitochondria and as they dysfunction, what does that mean what is happening, and what leads to that. We'll discuss the best ways to create mitochondrial biogenesis. We'll discuss nicotine's effect on the mitochondria. We'll discuss the cell danger response. And before Chris and I hit record, I asked, I, I told him, hey, I know you've been on a lot of podcast interviews. I'm going to make sure this one is different. 
And I asked him at the end of the episode when we hit after we hit stop, was this different? And he said, yes. So hopefully this will be a different one than you've heard before with Dr. Chris Palmer. I put a lot of energy and research into making sure we had some great questions for him today. And I love the conversation. I think it's so important. If you know anybody dealing with a mental illness, please share this with them. This could change lives. This could change our future. I also asked Chris, why is there no such thing as a lone gun woman? Why is it always a lone gun men? We'll discuss why that we think that is. So his book is great. Go get it. We'll drop a link for it down below. And if you want to watch the video version of today's podcast interview and all of our podcast interviews, that could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash ketocamp. We do a really good job with the editing and you can watch all of them on the YouTube channel. Before I bring on Chris, I want to briefly take a minute to acknowledge today's Apple podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Tree Tat titled, Buckle Up. I've been researching the keto space for a while now, but Ben has by far the best podcast I've listened to. The guests he brings on are phenomenal, and Ben himself is a pleasure to listen to. The amount of information provided in each episode is amazing, and don't get me started on these show notes. The show notes are the best I have seen. I've used them frequently to pinpoint a certain spot I wanted to listen to again. I've been researching keto and low-carb over the last few years, but I'm listening to Ben and his guests and reading books they have suggested, and it's inspired me to do more. I'm currently a nurse practitioner, but Ben and his guests have inspired me to pursue functional medicine in order to help my patients even further. It may seem crazy to say a podcast changed my life, but that's exactly what has happened. This podcast has helped me to see where my true passion lies and takes the steps to become my true, authentic self. Ben, thank you for being your true, authentic self and providing us with an abundance of knowledge. I will forever be grateful. I love this review. This is actually a review I've read before and it's so good. I needed to read it again. I wanted to read it again. So proud of you. Thank you for what you do and the patience you see. And I love that you're inspired to get into the functional health realm of things. Uh, We are so grateful. We appreciate your acknowledgement on the show notes. We definitely do a good job of that. And thank you. I appreciate you. You keep on inspiring and you keep on changing lives as well. If you have not left the show rating and review, please do so on whatever platform you're listening from. And without further ado, let's get right into today's amazing interview with Dr. Chris Palmer. Dr. Chris Palmer received his medical degree from Washington University School of Medicine and did his internship and psychiatry residency at McLean Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Palmer leads McLean's Hospital's Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education. In this role, he has developed hundreds of educational conferences, workshops, grand rounds, and other professional educational activities, most of them with Harvard Medical School. His leadership has transformed the department from a small subsidized department of the hospital into a flourishing educational program that is now leading mental health education for professionals nationwide. Here's Dr. Chris Palmer. Dr. Chris Palmer, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here with us. Thank you, Ben, for having me. 
I was just telling you offline before I hit record that I was uh, blessed to share a stage with you back in 2020. Actually, right before everything happened with COVID, it was January 2020 in Boca at Low Carb USA. And uh, I was actually the first time I had heard about you and I started to get into your work. And you know, ever since then, you have just taken off. You're changing so many lives. Of course, you have your brand new book, Brain Energy, which I'll discuss. And it's just so cool. Uh, it's just a testament to your work and the people out there are really hungry for this information. They're seeking root cause solutions and you're doing a great job tying it all together. And we're going to get to that. So before we do get to that, let's go back to your childhood. I know that you had a lot of mental illnesses yourself, OCD, other things your, your mom was dealing with. And that transpired into your adulthood where you were going to school and they wanted to put you on three medications. You had metabolic syndrome and you thought, okay, I'm going to explore one last option. And what did you explore and what happened since then? So I have metabolic syndrome. My doctor kept telling me low fat diet, exercise. I kept doing that year after year. I was actually pretty disciplined. I really, and I was going to the hospitals, you know, as a med student and now as a resident, seeing all these patients, you know, with heart attacks and diabetes and getting amputations and I mean, cancer, all sorts of horrible things. And I very much wanted to avoid their fate. And so I did not have a discipline problem. And I was pretty regimented about a low fat diet and exercise and everything was getting worse just year after year, my blood pressure kept going higher. I had prediabetes, my lipids were getting worse and worse. And so in a last ditch kind of wild chance effort, I decided to try the Atkins diet. And lo and behold, within three months, everything was better. Like my, my metabolic syndrome was completely gone. Blood pressure was totally normal. Lipids were normal. Prediabetes was gone. But I also noticed just significant improvement in mood, energy, concentration, sleep, like everything got better. And essentially, I've really never looked back. I haven't religiously stayed on a low carb or keto diet. I, I've pretty much stayed low carb ish, you know, sometimes adding more fruit or whole foods back. I, I typically avoid grains, I'll, I'll eat grains on special occasions, if I'm out with family and everybody else is eating some particular food, or if everybody demands that we get pizza, every now and then I'll eat something like that. But for the most part, I don't eat grains at all. And that's working well for me. I still do not have metabolic syndrome. I'm you know, 55 now. I've avoided all, you know, it has not returned. The mental stuff has not returned, so uh, it, it is working out well for me. So for people who say, you can't do a diet long term, well, I'm, I'm just yet another example of somebody who has figured out how to do it for pretty much almost 30 years, and it works well. And when you feel really good and your health has improved, it's not that hard to stick with the diet. That's right. Yeah. What year was that when you went through that uh, change? That was in the late 90s. I don't know the exact year, but it was probably like 97. Okay, 97. So you saw what it did for you yourself firsthand, but you still didn't really connect the dots yet. It wasn't until 2016 where you had a specific patient you were working with for many, many years. And that's where things really started to click for you with what happened with that patient. If you could explain what the patient was dealing with 
and how that kind of kickstarted this relationship between the mental health and also your uh, metabolism and the mitochondria within your body. Yeah. So that particular patient was a 33-year-old man who had what's called schizoaffective disorder, which is crossed between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Basically, he had hallucinations and delusions every day. He was paranoid. He had trouble going out in public, was terrified when he went out in public, convinced that people were you know, trying to harm him. People were monitoring him. They were talking about him. They were laughing at him. So he had trouble going on a bus. He couldn't go into a movie theater. He, he, he was really significantly impaired. And for whatever reason, got it in his mind that he needed to lose some weight. He weighed 340 pounds. So in fact, he did, but... He wanted to lose weight for a girlfriend, right? That was his like main goal. <laughs> that was his goal. He, he got it in his mind that... You know, he had so many things wrong with him. He had schizoaffective disorder. He was still living with his father. There were so many things that were interfering with his ability to get a girlfriend, but he was also really overweight. And he, like, that was something that he could do something about, at least, or at least try to. So he decided, you know, I think I want to lose some weight. And so for a variety of reasons, we decided to try the ketogenic diet. And although I had seen it work for myself and for many other patients, actually, who'd had depression or anxiety disorders or other disorders, I had seen it improve mental health in those people. But I'm thinking this is schizophrenia, essentially. Like, there's no way a diet's going to do anything for that. So I was really just going into it, hoping to help the poor guy lose some weight. I, I had no other goals or expectations And sure enough, within two weeks, not only is he losing weight, but I start to notice this powerful antidepressant effect in him. He's like coming to life. He's getting more animated, making better eye contact, talking a lot more, just seems happier and more positive. And I'm thinking, whoa, like what's gotten into you? I've never seen you like this. And this shocking thing that just now has completely upended um, everything that I knew as a psychiatrist and really has really kind of pivoted my career. It was about, you know, six to eight weeks in, he spontaneously reports, you know, those voices that I hear all the time, I think they're starting to go away. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it's like, you know, how I thought there were all these families who were conspiring against me and people were monitoring me and trying to hurt me. And I'm like, yeah, I remember And he says, you know what? I don't think that's true anymore. And kind of now that I say it out loud, it sounds kind of crazy. And maybe it never was. Maybe I've had schizophrenia all along, like everybody's been trying to tell me, and it's going away. So that man went on to, he's now lost 160 pounds and has kept it off to this day, you know, over six years later. He, um... But he was able to do things he hadn't been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He can go out in public now without being paranoid. He was uh, able to complete a certificate program, able to perform improv in front of a live audience. He's able to do a lot of things that he had not been able to do. And that sent me on a 
scientific journey to understand what happened, how can I understand this? And, you know, I, I mean, my, my career took so many different paths at that point, because I, of course, I started using this in more patients, started collaborating with researchers around the world. I've published many reports in academic journals now. And there are other researchers who are very excited and enthusiastic about this. And, you know, we've got, they're doing randomized controlled trials and other types of controlled trials of the ketogenic diet for serious mental illness, for depression. Um, there are trials for PTSD, for alcoholism, for Alzheimer's disease. This field is taking off and really exploding and is in many ways kind of at the leading edge of neuroscience. Um, and shockingly, it all revolves around a diet. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's just an incredible story. And I know that's, that's one of many that you've seen and work with. So what were some of the pieces that you started to put together, collaborating with other researchers, working with more patients along the way in regards to being in ketosis? Like, What are the mechanisms of action here? How, how does it help with somebody who has a mental health condition? What were some of the specific findings that you started to find out initially? So the great news is that this was a, at least in my mind, this was a solvable puzzle. And one of the biggest things that made it a solvable puzzle was that we have decades of neuroscience research trying to understand how this diet stops seizures. So for people who don't know, you know, keto is definitely a weight loss diet. It's also used for type 2 diabetes but it is an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. It can stop seizures even when meds fail to. And that was really important. And the main reason that's so important is because we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry all the time in tens of millions of people. There are all sorts of medications that are actually seizure treatments, but we use them in people with a wide range of mental illnesses bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, personality disorders, dementia. We use them for pretty much almost everything. And so that wasn't lost on me. I was thinking, whoa, if this diet stops seizures, what can I understand about that? And so I went to the neuroscience literature and found out pretty quickly, this diet changes neurotransmitter systems, GABA, glutamate. It, it certainly improves insulin signaling and diabetes. But what a lot of people don't know is that actually insulin receptors are located throughout the human brain. And insulin plays a powerful role. Um, and glucose metabolism in particular plays a powerful role in brain function this diet decreases brain inflammation, it changes hormones, it changes the gut microbiome in some beneficial ways, and some researchers actually are focused on that as maybe the primary mechanism of action. But at the end of the day, I was trying to put all the pieces together. So I was still trying to understand what actually do epilepsy and schizophrenia have to do with each other anyway? And wait, but this is a diabetes treatment. How does that fit in? Like, what is schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or chronic depression? What do those things have to do with diabetes? And if you ask that, those kind of basic common sense questions, 
for people who don't know, they have a lot to do with each other, a shocking amount to do with each other. So I would dive into the literature on, well, wait, what is this doing for diabetes? How is that working? What is it? How does it help people lose weight? How is it stopping seizures? And how does all of that relate to mental illness? And at the end of the day, in order to try to integrate all of those different disorders or diseases, however we want to think about them, I was led to mitochondria, these tiny things in our cells that you know, a lot of people know is the powerhouse of the cell. But in fact, the more I learned about more mitochondria, the more my mind kind of exploded. And I was just like, whoa, this can't be true. And, you know, the, you know, one really important thing is a lot of times some people are skeptical, like Chris Palmer, you know, mitochondria are just the powerhouses of the cell. Why are you making a big deal out of them? What a lot of people don't realize is that research over the last 20 years has completely shattered that simplistic notion of mitochondria. And it turns out that mitochondria are playing critical roles in the function of cells. They are doing so many different tasks. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized, whoa, this is all highly relevant to the mental health field. And then I started putting some of the puzzle pieces together. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasia loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally, and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and $15 off your first box 
this is a crazy deal and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. Okay, all right, let's dive into the mitochondria. But the question is this, right? Most people would say the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. We learned that in high school. And to your point, it's not a mindless energy factory. There's an intelligence to the mitochondria. And when I think of the human body, Chris, I, I think of the number one priority for the body being survival. And then I think of, okay, if that is the case, and you could tell me if you disagree with that, but I, I believe that it is survival. So if that is the case, then we look at the mitochondria and we look at which cells have the highest concentration of mitochondria. It's equivalent to the cells that are most needed for survival. Like for example, in some of your research, you tell me the brain. What, what is the highest concentration of mitochondria in certain regions of the brain? What have you found with that? So that I actually have not really researched that extensively. And I'm actually not convinced because I haven't seen a ton of research on that. So to look at different brain regions and look at mitochondrial density or how many mitochondria are in each cell, I'm not sure we even really truly know. The range usually is from hundreds of mitochondria in a typical cell up to thousands and thousands of mitochondria, especially for really long nerve cells. So some neurons actually go from your brain all the way down to the spinal cord. So those are massive. They can be a meter or more long. And um, especially depending on how tall a person is, and those cells would have thousands of mitochondria in them, but that's different than mitochondrial density. So I'm not sure that's necessarily the right way to look at it. But one fascinating thing that's highly relevant is that if you look at where are mitochondria most found in a nerve cell or a neuron, it's actually at the synapses. And the reason that's important is because synapses are where neurons talk to other cells or communicate with other cells through neurotransmitters and hormones and other things. And, you know, researchers have known for decades that in order to figure out where the synapse is, they actually look for these little pockets of mitochondrial density. So high kind of large areas of mitochondrial density, and then they can assume that a synapse must be there. And the reason that's so relevant is because it, you know, mitochondria are actually doing a lot of the work at the synapse. They are helping to release vesicles of neurotransmitters or hormones. They are helping to restore ion gradients, which kind of like, you know, the calcium and potassium and sodium are flowing across membranes that make cells go or not go or work or not work. And mitochondria are actually involved in a lot of that. 
But synapses in particular are a place of very high activity. A lot of energy is required, but a lot of it's more than just the energy. Mitochondria are actually playing an active role, for instance, of shuttling vesicles of neurotransmitters around and helping to release them. And if you if you take the mitochondria out of the synapse um, and give it enough ATP, which is the energy, those neurotransmitters still don't get released. And so uh, they're they're very active. That is interesting. So what you're saying is essentially the mitochondria are, are, are moving around. They're not just staying in one place. You're saying they're actually shifting around and they're working to create this uh, homeostasis, this balance to make sure things are moving along is what you're saying. They are. There are some mitochondria that are probably stationary in cells, but it appears that most mitochondria are moving around and they use what's called the cytoskeleton to move around cells. And it's fascinating because if you really do a deep dive into the science of mitochondria, so mitochondria moving around is something called mitochondrial dynamics. And it turns out that mitochondria actually fuse with each other. So you can have two mitochondria coming together and they actually form one mitochondria and they fuse with each other and become one, but then they can keep moving and like bud off from each other. But when they fuse with each other, they actually share information. It appears that they're actually sharing proteins or other things. If one of them isn't fully healthy and they fuses with a healthy one, they actually can kind of divide up some of the healthy tissue and non-healthy proteins. And, and, and the shocking thing is that those things are highly relevant to the function of cells. So when researchers interfere with the ability of mitochondria to fuse with each other, for instance, a lot of cells will stop working. They, that plays a role in which genes get expressed from the cell nucleus. It plays a role in whether, like, um, actually what the identity of the cell is. A paper just came out today looking at, like, fat cells and what makes them go from white fat cells to beige fat cells or brown fat cells. And mitochondria actually are involved in that process. In that research where they're removing the mitochondria, or that you said they're removing the function of them to be able to fuse, I think you said, they're not they're cells that are not um, being used uh, efficiently. Is it turning into a, is it going into apoptosis, or is it going? Or are they turning into like senescent cells? So, I mean, it, depending on how they're manipulating mitochondria, it could be either. But they. Uh, but mitochondria actually drive the process called apoptosis. When enough of the mitochondria in a cell become dysfunctional, which is sometimes called oxidative stress or mitochondrial dysfunction, or there are lots of terms, and increasingly it becomes really complicated fast because there are all sorts of different types of mitochondria and they're doing different types of things. And so some researchers, the more they learn about it, the more they're like, whoa, we've got a whole brand new field like that's getting really complicated quickly. And we need to like, this term mitochondrial dysfunction is way too generic. It's kind of like saying human dysfunction. Um, like human dysfunction, well, yeah, that's kind of useful and helpful, but it, in many ways it's not helpful at all. It's There's so many variations of human dysfunction and so some of the really leading mitochondrial researchers will say, yeah, 
So, you know, the same goes for mitochondria because there are different types in different cells or even in the same cell, there are different types. But bottom line is that when mitochondria become dysfunctional, have high levels of reactive oxygen species, they actually start to release what's called cytochrome C into the cytoplasm or into the cell. And if enough of that happens, it actually kills the cell. The cell dies. So what's the difference between the mitochondria of somebody following a standard American diet? Let's say they're eating over 300 grams of carbs per day with processed carbs, seed oils, et cetera, versus somebody who's doing a low fat, excuse me, a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet. What, what is the difference in their mitochondria and why is it different? So the ketogenic diet is one of the very few ways and fasting, fasting is, you know, ketogenic diet is mimicking the fasting state. So fasting and keto, possibly significant calorie restriction, you know, even if you're eating carbs or other types of foods. Is it the stress? Is, is it the stress of the caloric restriction and the fasting that forces the mitochondria to adapt and get better? Some of it is that when people are in a fasting state, at least in some of the cells, I don't know, I don't think this has been worked out for all cells in the human body because there are lots of different cells doing different things with different roles. But at least in some of the cells, the fasting state actually triggers mitochondria to all fuse with each other. And they form these long tubular networks that protect them from being degraded. So when, when somebody is fasting, not only do you start tapping into fat stores as a fuel source, but your process increases something called autophagy, where individual cells will actually start to scout out for old or defective proteins, and it will recycle them um, and will basically degrade them and then use them as an energy source or use them to build new essential proteins that need to be made. Now, on the surface, I just want to point out, this is a highly beneficial thing. So most people think going without food must be bad for you because that's, you know, some people equate it with starvation. Oh, if you don't eat, you know, three meals a day with a couple of snacks in between, you're starving to death and you're going to die. But in reality, when you stimulate this autophagy, what happens is it's not just random destruction of healthy muscle or healthy tissue. It's actually tapping into your fat stores, but then also scouring all of the cells in your body, looking for anything that's old or defective and recycling it. And that is in many ways, nothing short of miraculous because it is like a spring cleaning for your cells. It is like your cells are getting rid of anything old or defective and recycling it. And then when the person eats again, they use those new nutrients to, you know, replace any parts or proteins or anything that got degraded. So mitochondria are protected in the fasting state with one exception, and that's the unhealthy mitochondria. The unhealthy mitochondria, the ones with high levels of reactive oxygen species, tend to get degraded 
when people are fasting or on a ketogenic diet. So that is a process called mitophagy. And that is really important because we think that people who have metabolic disorders, but also mental disorders, we think that they probably have some defective mitochondria, more defective mitochondria than most other people have. And so getting rid of those defective mitochondria is really important. But then the other thing that happens when people are fasting or on a ketogenic diet is that it's something called mitochondrial biogenesis, where the cells start creating new mitochondria. So to answer your question more concisely, what happens or what changes when somebody's on a keto diet, what happens is that many of your cells in your body and brain will actually have more healthy mitochondria at the end of the day. And that is a way to improve metabolic health. And what I'm arguing, also improve mental health across a wide range of mental health conditions. Amazing. It's, it's just, it's so incredible, the human body and all the things that this incredible orchestra that takes place. And to your point with autophagy, I always give the analogy of a, a refrigerator with uh, these groceries that have an expiration date. And if we don't take the time to use up those groceries or, or replace them with fresh groceries, they tend to expire and turn into a really toxic environment. And I relate that to the mitochondria and certain cells. They have these expiration dates. So fasting, ketosis, exercise, et cetera. These are ways to take those expired groceries out and replenish with fresh groceries. And we don't even have to think about it. The body's doing this. The innate intelligence is doing this automatically. And you made the point with ketosis and what that does for healthier, more robust mitochondria and myobiogenesis, mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria. So is that the primary mechanism of action when we look at ATP production when somebody's in ketosis versus ATP production versus somebody who's in a high sugar, high carbohydrate diet, so burning sugar versus burning fat? Are they producing, the people in ketosis, are they producing more ATP, more energy because of this mitophagy, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis process, or is it something else going on? So it's a great question. And the real answer is, I think scientists would disagree. I don't think we know for sure. My hypothesis, my leading thought is that it is related to the, this kind of process of creating more mitochondria and the mitochondria are healthier. And to give a clear example, so we know that if you've got malfunctioning mitochondria or mitochondria with high levels of oxidative stress. What that means is that not only can they not process fuel sources um, across the board, so they're going to have trouble processing sugar. That sugar, the, those kind of malfunctioning mitochondria are going to try to process that sugar, but that sugar is going to then cause more oxidative stress or more reactive oxygen species, which just makes everything worse. The cell will still not have enough ATP at the end of the day. And so those cells turn to something called glycolysis, where in other parts of the cell, um, there are processes trying to turn sugar into ATP, at least some ATP, but that's when you get the buildup of lactic acid, 
um, and other types of molecules. But lactic acid is the, the classic one that most people are going to talk about. So you, get, you start getting this buildup of lactic acid. The cell doesn't have quite enough ATP. Um, and so the cell actually is really struggling to function properly. At the end of the day, that is the simplest way to think about it. This cell does not have enough power. It is trying to run at 100% power, um, and it maybe only has 80%, 70% of the ATP it actually needs. And so it is going to struggle. On top of that, you have increasing amounts of reactive oxygen species flowing around. So not only do you not have quite enough power, but now you've got these kind of toxic molecules floating around as well. And that cell is really going to struggle. Most of the time, in most parts of our body, those cells will die. This, because again, the, the mitochondria are struggling, they're producing more and more reactive oxygen species. That in most cells will trigger the cascade that leads to apoptosis, and that cell will die. The challenge in the brain is that brain cells don't die. Neurons, for the most part, are not programmed for apoptosis. Once a neuron dies, that's bad. You usually, there are some neurons that can regenerate themselves. And yes, we do get new neurons in specific brain regions. But by and large, once neurons die, it is a bad thing. And that results in brain shrinkage. And, you know, if it's really bad, it results in what we would call a neurodegenerative disorder, which we would usually call something like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or something else. So you're saying we, we can't kill brain cells? Is that what you're saying? We can kill them. I mean, if you have a stroke or if you have a head injury, we can kill them, but they're not programmed for apoptosis. Got it. So most cells in the body, when they undergo apoptosis, so if you think about this cell, it doesn't have enough ATP, it's got higher levels of reactive oxygen species, that cell will die. That is a good thing. That cell dying is a good thing because what will happen is another cell will take its place. There will be a stem cell or one of the neighboring cells will actually get appropriate signals to divide. And so you'll get a replacement cell so if this happens in your liver or your skin or your heart, uh, when, when one cell dies with apoptosis, another cell will take its place. Neurons do not. Neurons are one of the very few exceptions in the human body. They do not do that. Once neurons die, it's over. So neurons actually have protective mechanisms to protect them against going through this cascade of apoptosis. But what that means is that neurons are the, some of the most vulnerable cells in the human body to oxidative stress because they can't simply kill themselves and then be replaced by new ones. Mm, that makes sense. Okay. So with the topic of thing here with neurons, keto, low carb, high fat, fasting, we talked about the benefits of doing that for neurons. What else can we do to support our neurons? 
so so many things, and a lot of them are going to sound like common sense things, but when you put a lot of common sense things together, it turns into something called lifestyle medicine, <laughs> or it turns into... <laughs> turns into something called being really healthy and and it and, works most importantly and it works yeah and even though people think well this is just fluff or you know dr palmer we already knew that and and i'm sometimes you know told that like I, some people will say well we already knew that and i'm like well are you doing it well no right. <laughs> well then well then maybe try doing it and then we'll see so in addition to diet and dietary interventions Movement, exercise, really important. Sleep, good, restful sleep, really important. Checking for nutrient deficiencies, hormonal imbalances, those types of things, those are essential to metabolic health, mitochondrial health. Um, reducing stress, reducing sources of inflammation. And sometimes those are beyond people's control. So you could get COVID or you could get Lyme disease or lupus and have high levels of inflammation and that can affect your brain function. So I'm not trying to imply that all of these things are people's faults and that if they're having mental problems or metabolic problems that it's their fault, they just weren't following a good lifestyle because sometimes these things are beyond people's control. But if something like that happens to you, if you do get COVID or if you do get lupus or Lyme disease, you can use these other lifestyle strategies to try to reduce the impact of that and regain your health. Managing substance use. So there are lots of substances that are not good for our mitochondria, not good for our metabolic health. Well, alcohol, what, what others? Alcohol, smoking cigarettes, notorious vaping, marijuana. So I also want to just point out that there are a lot of prescription medicines that can cause metabolic and mitochondrial harm. And we use some of them in psychiatry. And the way you would know that is medications that cause people to gain weight or cause type 2 diabetes or other things. So sometimes medications might be playing a role. Here's a huge caveat that I really need to say loud and clear. If you're taking those medications, you must work with your healthcare professional to try to change them or get off them or adjust them. Please, please, please do not try to do that on your own. If you do, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be a disaster. When people try to come off psychiatric medications too fast or when they try to do it on their own, more often than not, it does not work out well. People can become you know, depressed, suicidal. They can become manic and psychotic. And the reason I'm so emphatic about it is not that I don't want people to get off medicines. I really do. I try to help a lot of patients get off medications and I... My goal for a lot of the patients I work with is to try to use these lifestyle interventions to improve their brain health so that they won't need medications. That is a serious, legitimate goal of mine, and yet getting them off those medications is a project unto itself, and it just needs to be done with a, very carefully and cautiously. Yeah, that's important to state. And what about nicotine? 
Is there any research on what that does to the mitochondria? I've, I've seen some things that it helps to uncouple the mitochondria. I've seen some things that too much is not good. So what are your thoughts on nicotine? So nicotine is a stimulant. So nicotine itself in its pure form, like if you're using it as a medication or if you're using even like nicotine gum, it is a stimulant, which means that it stimulates mitochondrial function. In low doses, it is revving up mitochondrial function, which in some cases can actually be really helpful. People can feel better. They can feel less depressed. They might feel mentally sharper. They might notice improvement in memory and cognition. The challenge is that if, if your mitochondria are not all that well, if you have some of these defective mitochondria that are churning out reactive oxygen species, and then you rev those up, you're actually just revving up, um, you're, you're pouring gasoline on an already burning fire. Makes sense. So something like pure nicotine, when it's in cigarette smoke, it's absolutely toxic. Do not do it. And when it's in vaping even, the, the chemicals in vaping in your lungs, your lungs are meant for air and not much else. <laughs> your, your, lungs, your lungs really shouldn't have a whole lot else other than just fresh air in them. Um, and this goes to pollution and smog and all sorts of things. But pure nicotine in and of itself can be helpful. If you use too much of it and or if you're not completely healthy, it can actually be really harmful. Hey, Keto Camper. What if there was an easy way to help detoxify your body, ease stress, unwind, and hey, even burn more calories? What I'm talking about is sauna usage. Now, there's a lot of studies that show the benefits of using a sauna, and it could be kind of complicated because they're expensive, and typically you have to go to a facility to use a sauna. What I love about my sauna is that it's a blanket that I use at the comfort of my own home. I use the one from Bond Charge. And sauna blankets work by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so you burn calories while you're relaxing. And you could burn up to 600 calories in one session. Sweating also helps flush out toxins like heavy metals from your body. And elevating your heart rate while relaxing releases endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric. I feel like I just got a 60-minute massage when I get out of this thing. It works by using infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also don't need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. It's very easy to use. You can enjoy a session of 30 to 45 minutes while relaxing, reading, watching TV, or meditating. It's easy to clean. It's low EMF, especially compared to other brands out there. Simple and easy to get set up. And even more important, you, Keto Camper, are offered a nice coupon code for Bond Charge's products, including their infrared sauna blanket. So head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to get 15% off your order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. As it relates to the mitochondria, I've been getting into Dr. Robert Navio's research the last few years on the cell danger response. And essentially, 
some of his research and others have put out some research out there showing that the mitochondria act like a surveillance system. You talk about this too, where it identifies these threats. You, you already spoke about these stressors, right? Mental, emotional, physical, chemical. And when it has perceived too much of these threats, the stress, it lowers energy production all for the sake of survival to deal with that threat. So with COVID, it's a threat. The body lowers energy, the mitochondria lowers energy production. The COVID might be gone, but the mitochondria gets stuck in the CDR response. I want your thoughts on that. And then I have a follow-up question. So what are your thoughts on what's happening there? You know, the real answer is it gets extraordinarily complicated quickly. So one of the complications is it's kind of like the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems for people who are familiar with it. The sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems are turning some tissues on And at the same time, they're turning other tissues off or at least quieting their activity. So sympathetic, you're getting more blood flow to your muscles, to your eyes so that you can see, but you're getting less blood flow to your digestive tract and to other or to sexual reproductive organs and to other things. So if you are running for your life, no need to be digesting whatever you or just pooping, ate yeah, or no pooping or peeing. No time for reproduction right now. This is not the time to be getting horny and stopping to, to meet with somebody that you're in love with or attracted to. This is you're running for your life or you're fighting for your life or whatever. Parasympathetic is doing kind of the opposite things. So... When we look at like cell danger response or when we look at the response of mitochondria in response to stressors like infections or even psychological and social stressors, there is zero doubt. We've got ample, abundant evidence. Mitochondria do respond um, or specific cells are responding and mitochondria are playing a role in the response to psychological and social stressors. But depending on which cells and which tissues, it's going to be different. So one clear example, some researchers who are doing work on this as well um, have cells in a Petri dish, and they add just a little bit of cortisol to it. So cortisol is kind of known as the stress hormone. When they add cortisol to it, the mitochondria actually increase energy production. So they're going on high alert. And some of that is probably related to the stress response. So if somebody is threatened, you actually do want some tissue. You want more alertness. It's no time to be sleeping. It's no time to be resting. You want to hyper-startle at the slightest sound. And so the, the, the... organs and tissues and cells in the body that are helping control those responses are actually revving up. Their mitochondria... Yes, their mitochondria are actually producing more energy so that that cell is trigger happy. That cell is ready to fire when needed. Makes sense. And again, other cells may be the exact opposite. Digestive tract cells are a clear example where you know, you're threatened. So those cells, ATP levels are probably going down and the mitochondria are responding, down-regulating because 
at the end of the day, our bodies are always looking for what is the optimal way to spend the amount of energy that we've got. We've all got a certain amount of energy, and that is in the form of food that we just ate, oxygen levels, fat stores that we might tap into, others. But there's a finite amount of energy. And our body is constantly trying to figure out where should we put our energy right now? Like all of the cells are kind of working together, you know, coordinated by the brain and nervous system, but also coordinated by all of the different mitochondria and all the different cells. And there's this kind of very sophisticated, seemingly algorithms where the body is constantly shifting, adapting, trying to figure out where should we put our energy now. And at the end of the day, that's what that's about, is some cells are revving up, others are quieting down. It's absolutely incredible. So in that study, did they look at what happens uh, over a long period of time with the cortisol? Did they see what happens with chronically level, high levels of cortisol, or did they not see the, that as well? So we know from lots of lots of lines of research, and this has been known for decades, um, if not longer. So people who have chronically high levels of cortisol, whether that's through a human disease that we call Cushing's disease, um, where um, people have abnormally high levels of cortisol secreted by their adrenal glands, or whether that's through taking a medication that is similar to cortisol. So you might take a medication called prednisone, which is mimicking the effects of cortisol. In either case, over time, high levels of cortisol are really bad for human health. They speed up the aging process. They increase risk for all of the metabolic disorders and mental disorders. And at the end of the day, they shorten lifespan. And that is consistent with this theme that we've actually known about for a century, which is called the rate of living theory, which says that the higher the metabolic rate, the shorter the lifespan of the organism. And which is a little bit paradoxical because most people, especially humans, a lot of humans think, no, I want a high metabolism. I want a revved up metabolism so that I can be skinny. Well, in fact, you really don't want a revved up metabolism. You want a calm, peaceful Buddha metabolism. <laughs> you want a Zen metabolism, which is I'm calm, everything's okay, I'm not threatened, because that puts your cells at a low level of me metabolic activity or mitochondrial activity, and it ends up resulting in a longer lifespan and better health. Do obese individuals have a higher metabolic rate? It's interesting. So obese individuals on average in many cells that have been measured have lower levels of ATP. So they have less ATP, but they are burning up some calories in the form of reactive oxygen species or heat. They're storing a lot of the calories or some of the calories, some of the excess calories, because that's it's getting stored as fat cells. So I won't comment because we may have some head-to-head -head studies looking at overall metabolic rate 
in obese people versus non-obese people. And I don't, I don't know how that research plays out because we know that people who are obese live shorter lives on average, uh, at least in humans. Yeah, that, that would be interesting to see. If you do come across that, let, let me know. So you're right. It's, it's a little bit of a paradox what I just went through. So that's why I'm not yeah. going to comment on it because if, there may be a clear answer on that. But everything, I stand by everything I've just said. Higher metabolic rate on average, especially across species, is associated with shorter lifespan. It makes sense. I remember Dr. Kate Shanahan was telling me that we don't really want a fast metabolism or a slow metabolism. We want a calm, efficient metabolism. You just explained that. Mitochondria. Is it true that 100% of the mitochondria that I have, that all humans have, we get from mother? Or is it 100% from mom or do we get them from dad? So the mitochondria that we inherit from parents, it, it almost exclusively is coming from mother. There are some rare exceptions. Researchers have found instances where sperm cells do seem to get one or more mitochondria into a new baby. And so sometimes you can actually see evidence that a, a paternal mitochondrion got in and then expanded as the baby grew. But by and large, the rule of thumb is we get our mitochondria from mom. However, a lot of people then think, you know, especially with my kind of theory about metabolism and mitochondria playing a huge role in mental health. A lot of people then ask, well, does that mean that we're inheriting mental illness from our moms? And it does not at all mean that. So to help people understand. So mitochondria have their own DNA and they have about 30, I think it's about 36 genes or so, and 13 of those genes code for ATP production. So mitochondria have their own DNA and that is what you're inheriting from mom. You're inheriting that mitochondrial DNA from mom. But the reality is that there are about 1,300 genes that code for mitochondria. There are about 1,300 different proteins that are all required to make up mitochondria. And the, major the overwhelming majority of those are in the cell nucleus. And you get a copy of those genes from both mom and dad. So even people who have rare mitochondrial disorders or defects, there's a good chance those could come from dad as much as they could come from mom. Makes sense. And I have an interesting question for you too. Why is it that we don't hear about alone gun women? When we think about these shootings, we always hear alone gun men, alone gun men. Why is it rare to hear about alone gun women? It's a really good question. It gets into what makes men and women different, not just at the biological level, but also at the social and psychological level. And I, I think those are inseparable, but a lot of people will say, well, you know, we know there are biological differences between men and women. Um, you can tell by the way their bodies are and the sex organs and the size. But in fact, women are different from men. Um, and on that, related to that question, I won't go into a whole diatribe of all of the differences between men and women, but one of the cardinal differences 
men are more aggressive. And there's reason to believe that that is hardwired. It, it is likely related to the sex hormones, testosterone and others, but men are hardwired for aggression and violence much more than women are. It's not that women can't be aggressive or violent. I'm not trying to say that. And it's not that some men can't be really kind and passive and compassionate and would never hurt a flea because there are men who would never hurt a flea. But on average, if you're going to have a human being who's going to be violent toward another human being, it's going to be a male. My strong guess is that that is probably one of the primary driving forces behind why most of the school shooters and mass shooters are men and not women. Do you also think in our society it, it's not appropriate or not acceptable, I'm putting that in quote, quotations, for men to talk about their feelings? Meaning like men are supposed to like just uh, whatever, hide it, be a man, like suck it up. Like, do you think that's part of it too, that we suppress, men typically suppress their emotions. They don't really share with other men in general and that could build up into rage. Do you think that's part of it as well? You know, I, I know some researchers who firmly believe that is the primary driving force, that men aren't allowed to cry, men aren't supposed to express emotions, and, and so they're more prone to rage. And so that's a real possibility. And I know some researchers who are very passionate and convinced that that is the issue. I'm not 100% persuaded that, that, it, that it's as simple as that and that it's a societal thing. In the same way that I just said men are more aggressive, I think part of that is that women are programmed to be more social. And that means men are programmed to be less social. And I think that, to me, helps at least me understand so women tend to take a more active role in parenting and childcare, whether they like it or not, even if they're with a male partner, a husband, whatever, boyfriend, and they're like, you've got to be equal in this. More often than not, even when everybody's trying to be equal, the woman is doing more of the, the parenting, nurturing, because women tend to have more of a better capacity for empathy, a better capacity for reading that child's emotions, for understanding what that child needs. Women, like girlfriends, so women who are friends with other women, they tend to like to talk and read each other and, you know, uh, let each other vent. Men, less so. Men are more about action. Let's do something. Let's go play a sport. Let's go run. Let's watch a football game. Let's, let's perform a physical activity or watch other people do physical activity. I'm not interested in talking to you about your feelings. And you know, some people write that off to social like influences. And yes, but sometimes it's hard to separate social influences from biology. I mean, if our biological drives are wired that way, then of course our society is going to function in that way. And it will look like it's a social influence when in fact it, that's what we call social is just a reflection of biology. 
By no means am I trying to stereotype men and women. I know what I've just said probably is outraging some people. (laughs) And so I'm not trying to outrage anyone. I'm not trying to piss anyone off. Men can be whatever they want to be. Women can be whatever they want to be. But those are general trends that I think most people can kind of acknowledge. Yeah, that's kind of true. Women tend to be different with women friends than men tend to be with men friends. And I think it gets into some of these issues that you're bringing up in terms of like violence and, uh, you know, mental health. And it's fair. Makes total sense to me. The last thing I want to close with is when we think about obesity, there are many causes to obesity, right? We know that it's processed foods, mitochondria issues, metabolic dysfunction. What are your thoughts on not just obesity, but people who have addictions to substances that destroy the mitochondria that you mentioned And a big cause of why people are unhealthy being that they lack goals. And it reminds me of a quote that I'll share with you. And then I'll just get your thoughts on like lacking purpose and what that does to deteriorate our health. But it reminds me of a quote from Robert Heinlein. He said it a very long time ago. He said, in the absence of clearly defined goals, we become strangely loyal to performing daily trivia until ultimately we become enslaved by it. I asked a question, Chris, and I want to know your thoughts on that because I used to be depressed. I used to have suicidal thoughts where I would go on the internet, look for ways to end my life, 2007. And I didn't go through with it because I kept thinking about my mom. And that was the only thing that stopped me back then. And then I started to do clean up my diet, move my body, do a lot of things that you mentioned. And it changed my mood, changed my mental health. But then I got really clear on my goals. Like I fell in love with learning about health and nutrition. And a lot of the things that I used to do, I used to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, these these bad behaviors. I didn't even have time to think about it because I was so focused on my goals. And that was 15 years ago. I've been in the space now. So for me, it was a huge thing for my health and I believe my longevity. So how much of the unhealthiness and the disease and dysfunction can be attributed to people not having clear goals? I think a lot of it. We're all creatures of habit. And habits are not a bad thing. Habits are the easiest way to get through life. And they are the default. Every human will develop habits. Every animal will develop habits. If you've got a dog or a cat, your dog and cat are going to go through some rituals. They're going to have some favorite places to, you know, rest and look out the window or, you know, they're going to have some favorite activities. They're going to have a routine in terms of eating and pooping and peeing and all of it. We are hardwired for habits Um, because life would really be overwhelming and stressful. And if we had to constantly think about, okay, what am I going to do different today? So part of creating a quote unquote goal is if you align all of your habits to be accomplishing things that you really want to accomplish that are meaningful and important to you, that's kind of the definition of a goal. And now you're just living your goals, but you're on autopilot and you're just doing it. And I do that. I I suspect you do that with our diets, with an exercise routine. We don't think about it. We don't struggle with, should I eat a good diet today or should I cheat and have this other stuff or should I go to the gym or should I go for a run or should I should I do this or not we just do it because we're used to it now and it's a habit 
or, you know, we made it a goal a long time ago, but it's now become a habit so that I would say it's no longer a goal. It's just how we live our lives. When you create a goal, it's about changing a habit. It's about changing a trajectory in your life. It's about saying the path that I'm on either is insufficient or maybe detrimental. And I want to change path or I want to do something more or I want to do something different. And so you create a goal. And the reason I'm, I stress habits because that is how you make a goal a reality, is you start to ask yourself, how can I incorporate this goal into my daily life and get it to be a routine, get it to be just a normal everyday habit? So if you've got a goal of changing your diet, it's going to be massive changes. Because number one, you have to get rid of all of these old habits that you want to get rid of. And, but now you have to develop new habits, new eating preferences, a new way of preparing meals, a new way of thinking about eating. And so those are two big changes simultaneously. You're getting rid of old, you're trying to extinguish old habits, and you're trying to develop new ones that are going to feel good and reinforcing and comfortable. And but yeah, at the end of the day, people, so people who are thriving, I would say, are in a good space. They've got a good set of habits, a good way of living their lives. And they're probably mostly on autopilot and just doing their thing. They may or may not need any new goals. They may just need to keep doing what they're doing. But for people who are stuck, for people who are struggling with mental health challenges, if you're struggling with depression or anxiety or suicidality, or if you're struggling with your weight or lack of exercise or something else, and you're, you're kind of recognizing this isn't who I want to be. You know, this is going to have bad consequences or it's already having bad consequences. I want something different. I want to feel better. I want to look different. I want to be different. I want to live longer, whatever. Then, yeah, I think it's really critically important that you come up with a plan come up with a strategy, try to think of it in terms of small, tiny steps that you can take that will slowly but surely increase the habits that you do every day. Well said. Last quick question is around my favorite supplement in the world. I talk about this a lot, Chris. It's called uh, vitamin G. And I call it vitamin G because it's vitamin gratitude. My t-shirt has a little gratitude on it. Um, so the last question for you is, what are you grateful for today, Chris? Yeah, I'm grateful for a lot of things. I will say that I'm really grateful at the reception that my book has had. I'm most grateful for the fact that somehow or another, I was able to put something together in the form of a book that is really helping a lot of people improve their lives. Sometimes actually feels a little surreal still. It, it usually, it actually more often than not feels surreal. Like this cannot possibly be happening. I'm just Chris Palmer. How the hell did this happen? But I am hearing from literally thousands of people around the world who are improving their health. And I've had a lot of people say like, you know, this changed my life. I read your book. I implemented some of the strategies and it has completely changed my life. Thank you so much. And I just want to thank all of those people for letting me know that somehow I can be helpful. 
Yeah, you're changing a lot of lives and you're just getting started. Um, the book is called Brain Energy. If you don't know already, don't have the book, go get it. Chris dives even deeper. We just scratched the surface in the conversation. So where's the best place to get your book, Chris? People can get it at any bookstore, really Barnes & Noble, Amazon, other even independent, some independent bookstores have it. And then your website is chrispalmermb.com. Anywhere else that you want to send them? They can also go to brainenergy.com. So we've got a free newsletter. We've got a self-assessment that you can do, all sorts of free things that you can do there. Awesome. We'll put that down below. Chris, thank you for your coming on the show, spending time with us, going a little along today. And uh, I'm grateful for your work and your dedication and well-deserved. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that amazing conversation with Dr. Chris Palmer. He's amazing uh, and he's changing so many lives. Please share this with somebody you know who's dealing with a mental illness or somebody you know who knows somebody who's dealing with a mental illness. This could be such an incredible interview for them to listen to or watch on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash ketocamp. Dr. Chris Palmer, MD, is his website. You can get his book on Amazon. We'll drop a link for that down below. Go follow him on social media. We'll drop a link for that for him down below as well. Please consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review. I've got so much vitamin G gratitude for you for listening to the entire episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for spending part of your day with Chris and myself. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.